Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, Josh calling here from uh, Adelaide in South Australia, uh, just sitting in a beautiful open park area, tail end of summer at the moment, so we're still getting beautiful weather down here, and uh, with everything going on in the world, we're not really into a full lockdown yet, but you know, it looks like it's heading that way, but I just wanted to comment on some of the positive things that are coming that are coming out of this. We've already seen, since the closure of gyms and indoor sporting facilities, and uh, a lot of retail shops are just noticing so many people enjoying the outdoors more. Um, they look happier, not happier, but they look more entrenched in the outdoors and in being in nature again. And I, I'd really love to see that trend keep going. I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I hope that we get we take lessons out of this whole process and, and you know as it as it falls away that we we hold on to some things that we've adapted to through it. Um, I really love your podcast and I love Civilized to Death, mate. It's meant a lot to me over the last six months and I really hope you keep doing what you're doing. I love you, man. Um, all the best. Hope you're well. Thanks. Hey, Chris. This is Menno calling in from the Netherlands and uh, I just listened to your uh, podcast with uh, the German guy who, uh, who's done it all. And uh, yeah, great, great, great very inspiring but uh, it makes me miss traveling a lot I was on the serendipitous travel for about two years and it came to an end which is fine also due to the COVID of course but um, yeah this podcast inspires me to uh, to get going again uh, ASAP but uh, yeah so thanks for that so I want to give everyone the advice not to listen to your podcast before they go to sleep because now I'm like too stoked to sleep and gave, gave me a lot of energy thinking about uh, all the stuff I want to do and how amazing it actually is to be alive so uh, let's smoke some weed try to get some shed eye can't wait to the next one. Cheers. Thank you, Menno from Utrecht. Uh, and uh, Josh from Australia. Appreciate your sentiments, both of you. Funny, Menno didn't sound too stoked to sleep, did he? <laughs> if that's, man, Menno, if that's you too stoked to sleep, I can't imagine what you sound like when you're tired. Um this is a very Dutch episode, by the way. Uh, not only do we have Menno's message from his uh, his sleepy time in Utrecht, but I'm going to play you out. The transition music will be a song by Menno. He's um, uh, a cover, uh, son of a preacher man. He's a guitarist, and uh, he spent some time traveling around Europe and um, uh, busking, I guess, and... Uh, so along with that uh, memo, he sent me a link to his band camp and I listened to some of his music and it's fucking awesome. Really good. Uh, if you're taking notes, you can find his music at Menno, 
M-E-N-N-O, Roymans, R-O-Y-M-A-N-S, dot bandcamp.com. And I'll, uh, I'll mention that again. And of course, I'll put a link on my website for this episode. Uh, as I said, this is a very Dutch episode. The guest is a guy named Rutger Bregman. He is a historian, an author, best-selling author, um, and a badass. He's a really interesting dude. He's Dutch. I guess that goes without saying. But um, I really admire this guy, and I feel uh, a sense of kinship with him because um, both of us, in our own ways, have endeavored to speak truth to power, which... You know, if you've got a platform, what the fuck else are you going to use it for? Uh, you can kiss the ass of power and make a lot of money and go to a lot of good parties and uh, have a bunch of people blow smoke up your ass. But you're not really helping anyone if you do that. If that's your motivation, if your motivation is to be famous and, and you know, eat lots of fancy food and hang out with lots of fancy people, then fine. But that's empty. The real value of having a platform, whether it's a podcast or a book contract, or you get to stand on stage at Davos or TED, or you get invited to talk on television, the real value of that, as far as I'm concerned, is that it gives you the chance to say something true, and that's it. If you're not saying something true, then shut the fuck up. Let somebody else have that platform. And so I get very frustrated sometimes at the way the system. I mean, this is why I'm so sick of Steven Pinker. All right. It's not it's not just him. I know some people think I beat up on him too much, but believe me, he can take it. He barely knows who I am. He doesn't give a shit. But Steven Pinker to me is the sort of perfect example of someone who doesn't speak truth to power. They speak what power wants to hear and they're rewarded for it. They sell lots of books. They get a professorship at Harvard or MIT. And I'm not pissing on Steven Pinker's scholarship in linguistics, which is what he is an expert in. I'm pissing on Steven Pinker's later work where he became political, but pretended he wasn't being political. And he published lies about hunter-gatherers in order to make civilization look good by comparison. And those lies have been called out by me, by half a dozen other scholars. They've been called out in academic journals. They've been called out on television. They've been called out from the stage at TED. They've been called out many different ways. There's absolutely no question that Steven Pinker has heard people calling attention to his Lies, And the reason I call them lies is that he doesn't correct them. If they're mistakes, if someone says, hey, dude, you referred to these seven of these 10 
hunter-gatherer societies that you refer to in your book are actually not hunter-gatherer societies. They're horticultural societies with gardens and huts and villages, and therefore something worth fighting over, and therefore using them as a reference for hunter-gatherers' predilection to warfare isn't legitimate because they're not fucking hunter-gatherers. If that's a mistake, you correct the mistake. If somebody said to me, hey, Chris, you know, these uh, you referred to 10 different primate groups here and actually seven of them are not primates. They're marsupials. You can bet your ass I'd be on the phone to my publisher trying to correct that as soon as possible. That's pathetic. It's ridiculous. I pointed that out in Sex at Dawn. That was an international bestseller. He's heard of it. Trust me, he's heard of it. But when somebody approached him, a friend of mine, uh, Peter Sagal, actually, the NPR guy, uh, happened to be speaking with Steven Pinker, and he said, hey, what, what is your response to uh, Chris Ryan and Casilda Jetta's critique of your work and, you know, that you mislabeled, blah, blah, blah. And Steven Pinker said, oh, the bonobo people. And just that was it. The bonobo people. Yeah. Well, the bonobo people called you out on your bullshit, dude, and you didn't correct it, which means it wasn't a mistake. It's a lie. And then in his subsequent book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, he changed the term. He still used that data point, but instead of calling them hunter-gatherers, he called them pre-state people. Again, a recognition that he had heard the critique, but rather than changing his argument or, or admitting that his argument was based upon faulty data, he played a semantic trick. He called them pre-state people. Yes, both hunter-gatherers and horticulturalists are pre-state people in the same way that infants and 12-year-olds are pre-adult people. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. Anyway, sorry to get a little heated there. My point is that if you have a platform, if people are listening to you, people value what you're saying, then your responsibility to those people is to tell them the truth. And if your responsibility if you betray the responsibility to your audience in order to use your platform to appease powerful people, because you want Bill Gates to say your book is the best, or you want whomever to praise you, you're betraying your audience, and your audience is what gives you the platform. Having tens of thousands or millions of people who care what you say is the only thing. I mean, that is the platform. And if you betray those people, then you, in my opinion, are worthless. Anyway, my point is, and it's a long winded, it's a long way around to get back to where I started. Rutger Bregman speaks the truth and I fucking admire him for it as I hope you'll hear in this conversation he was invited to Davos and he was getting more and more frustrated the more panels he sat in on and listened to speeches because everybody all these rich people at Davos if you don't know what Davos is it's where the world's wealthiest people get together once a year and talk about 
how wonderful they are and how they're going to solve the world's problems. It's like Ted. Um, pretentious as fuck. And it's really just an excuse for a bunch of rich people to get together and, uh, you know, party and network and make more money. But Rutger went to Davos. Um, he had written a book, uh, something optimist, uh, opt Utopia for Realists, I think it was called. Which I read and actually I quote it in Civilized to Death and I quote it in a relatively hostile way, sort of making fun of, of something that he said in the introduction. Because in the in introduction, he said something, I think I, I raised this with him in our conversation, but he had said something about how, like in the past, everything was worse. Everybody was poor. Everybody was unhealthy. Everybody, you know, everything sucked. Everyone was ugly. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me, man? Um, so I called him out on that in Civilized to Death, and he, you know, as a legit intellect, he didn't, you know, change the words around and try to hide. He said, fuck, you're right. I was wrong. And then he wrote another book called Humankind, which came out this year, uh, which is amazingly similar to Civilized to Death. It's basically... Um, a book in which he argues that humans are not these Hobbesian monsters that Steven Pinker and others have been telling us that we are, and that civilization is not this veneer or this sort of a protective uh, fence that separates us from our evil nature. Um, that civilization is, in fact, something that separates us from our kindness, our human kindness, which is more aligned with human nature than any sort of, you know, beastly Hobbesian impulses. Uh, so I'm happy to say that he's come over to, to my side of that particular argument, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is, are you saying what you believe to be true? And if your sense of what is true changes, then you change what you say. That's you know, the, the sign of an ultimate integrity. So anyway, he, he uh, was invited to give a panel discussion and he went to this panel discussion at Davos and he said, hey, I hear all you rich people here talking about how uh, income inequality, wealth inequality is a big problem in the world, but nobody's talking about the fact that you all flew here on private jets and you pay nothing in taxes. That the wealthiest people in the world pay less in taxes right now than they ever have. This is like going to a fireman convention and never mentioning water. I think that's a direct quote. Uh, so he basically told them the truth to their faces and they didn't like it. Imagine that. And then he went on, he was invited to go on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News, and that devolved into a fucking nightmare, uh, a nightmare for Tucker, not a nightmare for Rutger, because I'm sure Rutger knew exactly what was going to happen. Tucker Carlson isn't there to hear the, the facts and the truth. Uh, at one point, he said, uh, Tucker Carlson is saying, you haven't even seen Fox News. You don't know what you're talking about. And Bregman says, I have actually. I can't say I'm a great fan of your show, but I do my homework when you invite me on your show. 
He says, I went to Davos to speak truth to power, and I'm doing exactly the same thing right now. You may not like it, but you're a millionaire funded by billionaires, and that's the reason you don't talk about these issues, these issues of taxation, income redistribution, fairness. Um, anyway, he says, uh, and then Carlson says, but I am talking about these issues. And Bregman says, only now, come on, you're just jumping on the bandwagon. You're like, uh, I'm against the globalist elite, blah, blah, blah. It's not very convincing, to be honest. And then Carlson says, why don't you go fuck yourself, you tiny brain? <laughs> I mean, he melts down. Um, and beautifully, Rutger was filming uh, it was a remote interview, and he was filming it. And then uh, Tucker Carlson obviously never released it on Fox, but Rutger did. So you can find that if you follow Rutger on uh, Twitter. There's a link to it, but I'll also put the link on my page. And you can uh, watch that interview. So it's, you know, it's similar to what I did um, at TED when I – you've heard me talk about it before, but – I got pissed off because they made me pull a slide from my um, my presentation, which was, you know, slightly risque. But they had seen it in in they'd seen it in my um, audition, and and they'd they'd seen it five different times. And the day before, they told me to pull it because it might offend somebody. The slide basically just said Italians have big balls, which come on, and uh, yeah. So anyway, I went on stage and I made a. The first thing I said was, it's amazing to be on stage at TED. The only thing that could be more amazing would be to have so much money that I could afford to be in the audience at TED. That was a reference to the fact that these things are fucking bullshit. These people aren't there to hear me talk. They're not there to hear the presentations. They're there to do deals, to get away with their mistresses. That's what they're there for. $7,000 for a ticket to TED. Who do you think's going there? You think smart young people are going there? No, no. Okay, sure, they can watch it online. Great. But the people who are there in the audience are millionaires and billionaires and very high-priced hookers. Uh, yeah, so that, you know, that was one of my little speaking truth to power situations. Uh Rutger Bregman, he's fucking fantastic. Now, before we get to Rutger, I wanted to talk a little bit about some things I've been thinking about, and I think they all come together. I think they're all more or less related. I was thinking, I was talking with a friend, um, and we were talking about the difference between loving someone and being in love with someone. I know I've, I've spoken about this before, but it's been a while, so if you're a new listener, maybe you haven't heard it. And I was thinking about that in terms of, like, in the context of the political situation in the United States right now. And um, it occurred to me that being in love with someone, at least in my experience, is a juvenile emotional stance. It's a combination of hormones and projection. So you look at someone and you say, my God, that person is so beautiful. 
It's so beautiful. If only he or she loved me, everything would be perfect. My world would be perfect. My life would be perfect. I could handle anything. You hear this in music and movies and all this shit, right? Like, you know, I'd take you to the moon. I'd buy you blah, blah, blah. All this bullshit, right? Like, you're not going to buy anyone the moon. Shut the fuck up. You know, when a man loves a woman, he'll sleep out in the rain. You've heard me talk about that before. No, don't sleep out in the rain, you fucking loser. But that's the expression, right? It's it's so extreme. It's like, ah, it's all or nothing. It's totally irrational and absolute. It's black and white. It's purity. Whereas love, actually loving a person, is basically the opposite of being in love with a person. When you're in love with a person, you don't see them. All you see is yourself, your own need, your own vulnerability, your own weakness, your own inadequacies. And you think that that person's going to fill them. They're going to address these issues. They're going to solve these problems. And so when you love someone, it's the opposite. It's not about me. It's about who that person is. What are their truth? What is their authenticity? What is their beauty, their true beauty, not their physical beauty, not just the pretty face and the white teeth and the abs and the fucking whatever it is. Who is that person? What have they overcome in their lives? What nourishment have they received and what are they missing? It's like a tree, you know, a fucking tree, a straight, boom, straight up, even branches. Uh, yeah, okay, great. Makes great lumber. But a beautiful tree is twisted and gnarled by wind, by years, by soil that wasn't quite getting enough of some things, but there was more of this and all the turns and the twists and the character in that tree is what makes that tree beautiful. Nobody goes out and takes a picture of a perfectly straight fucking tree. You go out and you take a picture of a gnarled, twisted, old, fascinating tree. A tree where you can see time in that tree. And that's why, you know, I've said to friends of mine, if women in this case, but the same is true of men, if a man sees your scars as ugliness, that man doesn't, isn't worthy of your attention. And I'm not, I'm talking about physical scars. I'm talking about psychological scars. I'm talking about marks, whether visible or not, of the pain that you suffered, of the challenges that you faced of the shame that you've worked through. These are the things of beauty. And you don't see those characteristics of a person if you're in love with them because you're fucking obsessed with yourself. Only when you're not in love, only when you can no longer be in love, 
do you have the rationality and the self-possession to actually love someone, to actually see past your own fucking lenses and see who's out there? Now, that is not black and white. It's not pure. Because some of what you see, you're not going to like so much. You're going to see, for example, that uh, she loved someone before she met you. And she had sex with him, and it was good. You're going to see that he's not always as compassionate as he would like to be. Sometimes he acts like an asshole. Sometimes he's aggressive. Sometimes he humiliates himself. You're going to see weaknesses because your eyes are clear enough to see the strengths and the beauties. You're going to see some of the ugliness as well. So there's balance. It's not purity. It's not black and white. It's shades of gray. It's not the expression or the emotions of a child. It's the emotions of an adult. It's measured. So how does this relate to politics? Well, there are a lot of people whose relationship with Donald Trump is the relationship of being in love. It's irrational. It's absolute. It moves beyond common sense. And I've spoken earlier in in other episodes about where I think that comes from, what that emotional need is. But if... Someone at this point where Donald Trump has locked himself in the bathroom and refuses to admit what's going on in the world, just as he refused to admit what was going on with COVID, refuses to admit what's going on, that Obama was born in fucking Hawaii, for Christ's sakes. People who are still aligned with this guy, who still believe in him, who still think that he's a legitimate object of their admiration and support, they're in love They're in love. They're crazy. They're as crazy as a 15-year-old girl creaming on her fucking Justin Bieber poster. They have no idea who Donald Trump is. Anyone who can see that guy knows what he is. And even if you believe that some of the policies that he supports are better in the long term, which I, I don't disagree with some of the policies, But if you think that guy is worthy of your support, then you're just a silly little girl who's in love. And I hope you grow out of it soon. I've lost a lot of uh, listeners, a lot of supporters in the last couple of weeks saying these sorts of things. And um, it kind of amazes me. It amazes me on several levels. One is how could you have been listening to this program and even sending me money to support the program up till now? Who did they think I was? I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I I know some people came to this program through Rogan. I guess that's a certain culture around him or they came to it through like a paleo thing. Um, There's a culture around that. And I know, that both those cultures sort of value uh, free thinking and truth-telling and all that. 
And uh, but the thing about truth telling and free thinking is that it's not always going to align <laughs> with what you want it. You know, people tell the truth, tell their truth. They're not always going to tell your truth. There's a difference between free thinking and fucking stupidity. Um, anyway, so if you value this podcast and you uh, have been waiting for the right time to show some support, this might be that time. Um, I appreciate everybody who supports the podcast. I even appreciate the people who've written to me to tell me why they're withdrawing their support. I don't understand it, but uh, I think that's kind of a, you know, bespeaks some integrity anyway. Um, I'm going to play you out, as I promised, with this cover um, by Menno Roymans. And it's a cover of Son of a Preacher Man, which is a really interesting song. And I think maybe this is an awkward segue, but I do think that it aligns with what I've been talking about here because – if you know the song, it's a woman singing. She says, she talks about when she was a little girl, well, not a little girl, teenager, I guess. And um, this preacher would come to town and hang out with her father, I think. And the preacher had a son and he took her for a walk. And I guess they fucked. And it was the best fuck of her life. And she says, uh, now she's looking back as an older woman and she says, the only boy who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. Now, why is that significant? Why, why does that sound interesting? It's because the preacher man, this is my interpretation. The preacher man is speaking about purity, about absolutes, about God, the ultimate pure goodness, Right. Jesus was so pure that his mother, even his mother, never fucked. He was born not of sex because sex is sinful. Sex is dark and juicy and dirty. No, Jesus had none of that. Jesus, there's no cum involved in Jesus. (laughs) Uh, So... That's what he's preaching on Sunday morning. Meanwhile, his son is taking this girl out behind the, you know, the church and banging her in the woods. That's what the song's about. It's about the conflict between these absolutes, this declaration of purity, the hypocrisy of purity, the hypocrisy of saying you're in love with someone when all you see is yourself. And the truth which is that lust exists. Lust is good. When handled properly, lust is one of the best things in the world. And the son of the preacher man knew that, and he knew how to use it. He knew how to whisper in her ear. He knew what to say. The sweet-talking son of a preacher man. All right, that's enough for me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rutger Bregman. It's an honor to be able to talk with people like this, and I appreciate and am grateful to you for making it possible, because without this audience, people like Rutger would not have time to get on the phone and chat with me. So many thanks to you. This is another 
commercial-free episode of Tangentially Speaking. Over and out. Bregman. Uh, did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> okay. I won't bother um, you with the Dutch pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only Dutch I, I know is uh, <laughs> uh, Well, that's a very important word in Dutch. So uh, I'm glad yeah, you know that. <laughs> I have a very close uh, Dutch friend who we used to play a lot of backgammon. And, uh, he, he would uh, come out with that every once in a while. <laughs> Well, you know, my father is a is a Protestant preacher, so I didn't get to say it a lot when I was young. But <laughs> <laughs> I guess that only makes it more special for me now. 
Yeah. Are you in Amsterdam or in Holland somewhere? I live in Houten. It's a little bit to the south of Amsterdam. It's a uh, small provincial town. But the Netherlands right. is a very small place anyway, right? If I drive for two hours, then I'm either in Belgium or Germany or in the North Sea. So uh, in any direction, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually have a lot of um, affection and admiration for Holland. Uh, you know, my friend who I mentioned, I've known him for 30 years or something, uh, Martijn van Dijvendijk, mm-hmm. very Dutch dude. Um, but uh, through him, I spent a lot of time in Holland and uh, I've gotten to know uh, Wim Hof recently and mm-hmm. uh, have some other friends up there. It's It's sort of my between uh, Spain and Holland or my main hmm. uh, my main haunts in Europe. Hmm. Anyway, um thank you for coming on the show. I know you're a very busy guy. You're in uh, great demand and uh uh you're sort of uh, the man of the hour. You've been the man <laughs> of the hour for a while now. Well, I don't know if that's true, but thanks for having me. And uh you know, it's quite exciting for me as well because you know, I published this book, Humankind: A Hopeful History in September of last year in Dutch. Now, your book, Civilized to Death, that was published, what was it? A couple of, I think, early October. beginning of this? Yeah, October. So that yeah, was a month, yeah. after, month after my book. Now, I must say that reading your book was a very strange experience for me. <laughs> because I was yeah. like, oh my God, this, is, this guy has been on completely, you know, on the same trajectory that I've been. But obviously, I mean, I couldn't have read your book and you couldn't have read mine uh, Unless you yeah. know more Dutch than Hot for Dolma. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. that's incredibly exciting to, to uh, for me, it was really exciting to read your book and to see, hey, wait a minute, he's sort of, yeah, made the same journey yeah. as I did in my, yeah, in my thinking. We're on the same Many of the Although, examples, and uh, I mean, you even talk about this Lord of the Flies example of kids <laughs> shipwrecked true. on an island, and like, yeah. oh my God, he got to that as well. And yeah. he'll be excited to know that I actually managed to find these kids, you know? Yeah, who, uh, yeah. I yeah. just retweet, retweeted that actually uh, an hour ago. Uh, cool. You, I saw you had something about that. Yeah, it, it is strange, although it must have also been weird for you to read. Uh, you know, the one place where I quoted you is from Utopia for Realists. And yeah, I, well, you strongly disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think you had a good point there. I mean, it's really... Um, I start the book Utopia Freelist, my previous book, with this observation that in the past everything was worse. And what I should have said there was um, something like in the last 10,000 years everything was worse and we made, you know, quite some impressive progress in the last couple of decades. But then the question is just how sustainable that is. So, in sort of in that statement in my previous book, I completely ignored, I don't know, 95% of human history. In which when we were nomadic and togetherers. And I must also admit that back then, I still believed, I, I, I had read very little about it back then, but I still believed back then that people like Steven Pinker were right about nomadic and togetherers. And that, you know, actually when I started to write Humankind, I thought that I would have to make one admission about human nature, that even though I think there's a lot of hope in our in the history of our species, that I would have to admit that, well, actually, nomadic and togetherers were engaging in warfare a lot of the time. So that's what I still believed back then. So you were absolutely right in, in quoting me there and saying, hey, here's one of these authors that has this uh, <laughs> naive view <laughs> about, yeah, yeah uh, our it's history. Funny, it's funny yeah. to have you make such a, a turn and, and, you know, to have written a book very similar to Civilized to Death. Let me just read the, the quote just so people know exactly what we're talking about here. 
Um, I said, uh, this is at the very beginning of the book where I'm sort of setting up how people have this horrible view of prehistory. And I quote you saying, let's start with a little history lesson. In the past, everything was worse. For roughly 99% of the world's history, 99% of humanity was poor, hungry, dirty, afraid, stupid, sick, and ugly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, ugly? Come on, man. <laughs> well, I, th I still think it's a pretty good description of the history of civilization, right? It's just that most yeah. of our history wasn't the history of civilization. So, yeah. yeah, we have strong evidence that once we settled down and once we invented agriculture, that everyone, everything went downhill. And we know we entered the era of warfare, of infection diseases, of hierarchy, of patriarchy, uh, of long working weeks. You know, it was one big disaster. Yeah, uh, of that, epidemic and, disease. Yeah, exactly. Like COVID-19 is just another one in a very long story. And it's only recently, and I think we must acknowledge that, that we've made quite some progress. I mean, living at the beginning of the 21st century um, is, for many people, much better than, let's say, 100 or 200 years ago. I mean, yeah. up until the French Revolution, the vast majority of the world's population was basically a slave or, you know, bonded to some kind of landlord. Um, and um, the question is just here how sustainable that is. I mean, we may be dancing on top of a volcano and then, yeah, what does it really matter that maybe for 40 or 50 years, things were a little bit better when everything went downhill again after that? That's, yeah. that's sort of the big question. I mean, civilization is this huge gamble, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the biggest, the biggest yeah. gamble. Um, what changed your mind about a war in prehistory? What, what researchers did you read or, or what turned your, your head on that? Well, the strange thing about war in prehistory is that if you would read just the books that are popular, you know, that are reviewed in the major newspapers, uh, sort of the popular science books, then you get this impression that, yeah, nomadic and togetherers lived in these small groups that were always engaging in warfare. And that uh, this is also what gets a lot of attention in the press. So whenever there's some kind of ex excavation somewhere, this happened, I think, two or three years ago when science had it on the cover. They find something like some suggestive evidence somewhere of violence in prehistory. And then immediately the headlines are like human nature revealed. We were killer apes. You know, this has always been the case, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then if you go a little bit deeper and start reading sort of the boring, big academic books, right, by the actual experts who are sometimes not really good at, I don't know, getting their message across to a broader audience. So one really important book was um, uh, edited by Douglas Fry. He's, I think, one of the main uh, yeah, researchers here. I've had him on here. the podcast. Well, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, yeah. And he had this, this book, what's it called? Human uh, War and Human Nature, something like this. Uh, I think yeah. that was really a, a very important book with so many of the world's experts, you know, writing chapters, you know, uh, looking at region after region and just showing that both the archaeological evidence and the anthropological evidence for war in prehistory is very, very thin. I'm not saying it, it didn't happen at all, but I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of converging evidence that points in the same direction, which, which really seems to show that, yeah, the history of warfare had a beginning, had a quite recent beginning, actually, from the moment we 
we settled down and especially once we invented agriculture and um yeah nomadic hunter gatherers behaved in a quite different way you know obviously people i mean human beings we're not angels we can, we, we sometimes were jealous and we can be quite aggressive sure. or angry etc but um yeah very often these conflicts were solved by um yeah by just taking a time out or just going away right <laughs> yeah and, uh, and, and if yeah, you don't changed. own anything it's difficult to to be fighting you know like yeah. what are you fighting over what are you risking your life for if yeah. if there are no accumulated resources yeah um, you know, and, and you don't, uh, you're nomadic, so you're not defending a particular piece of land. It's the logic doesn't stand up either. Yeah, so what do you exactly. think now? Now you mentioned, okay, the, the sort of people who really know the, the research the, who are out in the field who are, who are doing this mm-hmm. original research, uh, seem to be on, uh, agree with our viewpoint on mm-hmm. war and prehistory, but a lot of the popularizers, the Steven Pinkers and the mm-hmm. Richard Dawkinses and those people uh, seem to be on the other side. What, yeah. what happens there between the data and the popular treatment? Well, the case of Steven Pinker is interesting. I mean, a lot of people like to hate him. I think that he's actually a quite friendly and nice guy. When I wrote Utopia for Realists and uh, I sent him an email about the book, you have to imagine that back then I was still a completely unknown author. I had basically self-published a book. And, you know, I just decided, let's look up Pinker's email address, just send the book and see if he he responds. And he very kindly wrote a very, I don't know, sincere reply. He thoroughly read the book, had a nice uh, comment on it and decided to blurp it. Now, trust me, uh, that is very rare in the in the world of. Uh, famous authors and intellectuals to get a reply like that. So I don't know that I think something like that really speaks for him. Um, he he clearly has his blind spots in his thinking, though. Uh, what I, I sort of think that he, um, in his take on human nature and on on human uh, history, he would always say that you know what I don't have a teleological view of of the state of the world or of history. I, I don't think that progress is inevitable. But if you zoom out a little bit and just look at his writing and his thinking, he he clearly sees. The, you know, history is sort of the marge of progress in which in the past, basically everything was worse. I guess that's what he liked about Utopia of Realists as well. <laughs> and then we made a lot of progress, right? And mm. and especially after the Enlightenment, we just became smarter and more rational, et cetera, et cetera. And we made, you know, better systems of government and built more rational institutions, et cetera. And that's something to be very hopeful about. Um, but that, that also means that... Um, he sort of has to buy in into what Franz de Waal, uh, the biologist or primatologist, calls the veneer theory of human nature, right? That civilization is a layer, maybe a thin layer or maybe a layer that's getting thicker over time, but it's still a layer. And deep down, you know, if you go deep enough, then you'll you'll find sort of the real human nature, which is basically about people being selfish, right? Um, yeah, it's the chimpanzee-based view. Yeah. Exactly. And throughout history, veneer theory has been used by those in power to justify hierarchy and to justify oppression. Because if people can't trust each other, if people are fundamentally selfish, then they need all-powerful rulers. They need a leviathan, as Thomas Hobbes would have called it. And um, maybe even, even if he doesn't do it intentionally, I think 
that is the reason why Steven Pinker is so popular among elites, because he sort of gives them the intellectual justification for inequality and for, you know, the differences between the elites and the rest of us. And um, that doesn't mean that he's an evil man or there's some kind of conspiracy going on or that he's just doing it for the money. But I sort of do think that that is his role. Uh, it's also the role of people like um, Hans Rosling, who passed away. I think it was a great thinker and writer. Uh, there are also the Swedish author, Johan Norberg. All these people who are pointing out, look, it's better than ever. We've made so much progress. I mean, if you go to the World Economic Forum, as I once did in Davos, they love that. They absolutely love that. They, they want to hear it every day. They want to hear it in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, because that means that even though, you know, there are still a lot of things going wrong in the world, you know, actually, we are doing our best. We are getting there. There is progress. And that means that we don't have to change anything fundamentally uh, when it comes to, I don't know, things like climate change or whatever. Um, so that is comforting for elites. Uh, yeah. They want to hear that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that's basically the argument I make in Civilized to Death and in Sex at Dawn, which is mm -hmm. that a great deal of uh, what passes for science is actually propaganda mm -hmm. in support of the status quo. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think Darwin has been co-opted uh, more than anyone, perhaps, for that purpose. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Dar sort of a, a ruthless interpretation of Darwinian theory underlies a lot of 20th century economics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've written about universal basic income. I think one of the, the main arguments against that basically is an abusive reading of Darwinian theory, right? Yeah. That people, like, we need ruthless competition in order to have any kind of progress. If people aren't forced to work, they won't work. And if they don't yeah. work, then the wheels of commerce stop turning and, you know, yeah. all hell breaks loose. It's, uh, yeah. it's you mentioned Franz Duval. Um, I have an interesting story about him, similar to your story about Pinker mm -hmm. being kind and generous to you. Uh, when I was writing Sex at Dawn, I was using a lot of his research, obviously, on bonobos and chimpanzees and, and you know, their social structures and so on. And But I was disagreeing with uh, some of his conclusions. Mm -hmm. And I, as I was coming to the end of, of the manuscript, I started to feel that there was something unfair about, on the one hand, using his research so heavily and yet criticizing his conclusions mm -hmm. in some way. So I sent him an email and said, hey, you don't know me. I'm writing a book and, uh, you know, this is the situation. I admire your research, but I'm disagreeing with some of what you said. If you're open to it, I'd like to send you the, the material mm -hmm. uh, from the manuscript. And if you think I'm being unfair to you, you know, give you a chance to say so before it comes out, you know. Mm -hmm. And he said, sure. I actually I offer this to three different scholars. He's the only one who accepted Mm -hmm. And I sent it to him and he wrote back and said, oh, this is interesting. Um, have you read this and have you looked at this paper and what about mm -hmm. this and that? And we had a little dialogue. And then after uh, a few exchanges, he said, you know, I don't know, you might be right. Hmm. Uh, you know, in any case, these are really important questions. And uh, I look forward to reading the book. And I yeah. Said, 
wow, what a well, that's wonderful. A that's wonderful. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love those kind of people who are willing to change their mind, right? <laughs> and and say so openly. That's a very rare thing to witness, <laughs> in, out in the open. Especially someone these who's days. got that kind of academic uh, reputation. You yeah, know, they become yeah. so defensive of their reputations. Yeah. and and look, I, I think that people like sort of we on the other side have to be honest about our work as well. I, I write about this openly in my book, is that I wondered quite often whether I was a victim of my own confirmation bias. I mean, if you're mm -hmm. writing a book with such a grand thesis about how people are sort of fundamentally decent, maybe not angels, but deep down, most people are pretty good, then obviously at some point during your writer's pro process, you get this tendency to see, hey, here's another example. There's another example, hmm. right? Sure. And then if you're a good writer, you can easily arrange everything in a way that it will convince 95% of your readers and say, oh, wait, this is excellent. But And give your critics a lot of work in demolishing the whole thing again, right? Yeah. So that is something that you have to be wary of with yourself as well. And I, I try to do that in this book. I, I'm not sure if I done uh, enough of a good job so sort of my, my my objective with writing this book was that i wanted to write a book that people could still read 10 years from now and that i also personally would still like 10 years from now mm. now if i l read my my first books that luckily only have been published in dutch you know the first ones that i wrote 10 years from now i absolutely hate them now so that was a big challenge actually and uh, we'll just have Did to do write? another podcast 10 years from now to see if i succeeded <laughs> Well, yeah, if, if books still exist 10 years from now. <laughs> yeah. uh, did you write it in English or in Dutch, this humankind? I always write in Dutch. So my really? English is not good enough for, you know, to what? write. And I've, I have two great translators. Fantastic. Well, thanks. But not, not good enough for writing, I think. And I've got two great translators. Mm. Uh, and I always, for me, it's, it's really important to write in a way that it's not simplistic. I don't want to simplify in any way really want to get the science across and um, to make sure that people understand it. But then, yeah, it has to be for a broad audience because I think the implications of this stuff are, are, are pretty profound and important because once you change your view of human nature, I mean, it's not just an academic discussion. Pretty much everything changes. How you organize your schools, your workplaces, mm -hmm. how we do democracy, if you can still have hope for the future. Um, yeah, it's... Um, in a way, the, I, uh, I also think it's quite dangerous idea. That was one of my first ideas for the bo uh, book title, to, to just call the book the most dangerous idea ever. Because believing in the good of humanity is a very subversive act, I think. It's those at the top who get really worried once people become hopeful. Because sort of, they need fear, right? That's always, you need people to be fearful that you want them to watch Fox News and CNN all day because then they become depressed and anxious and then you can rule them. And then if, if they actually become hopeful and start believing in each other and they start trusting each other, well, then you start to get worried as, uh, as someone from the elite or as someone who is in power. So, um, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's what I try to show. It's the opposite of divide and conquer. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Um, so in your... Did you sort of turn your, did you change your opinion of human nature between the previous book and, and humankind? Between Utopia bit. for Realists? A little bit. So Utopia for Realists, one of the main ideas in there was the notion of universal basic income, giving everyone a basic income to completely eradicate poverty. Now, 
I argued for that with a lot of scientific evidence. So I try to show, you know, there have been these experiments in the 70s, in the 80s, and there's so much evidence from behavioral economics and psychology that people don't waste the money, but they actually use it really well. It's just a bit of venture capital that enables people to move to a new job, start a new company, and then you get all these fantastic results. Healthcare costs go down, crime goes down, kids perform better in school, you name it. So that's sort of what I did. It was a very, I think, how do you say that in English? Sort of a wonky, wonkish book, right? Mm. Um, to show, look, this is just the scientific evidence. UBI works. Then I went on a book tour and I found myself discussing not the actual scientific evidence with people, but every time, you know, after 30 or 40 minutes of debate, we were always talking about human nature. Because that was the main objection that people had. It's like, oh, maybe this works on a small scale. Maybe this works in a crazy country like the Netherlands or some other stupid Scandinavian place. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't work in the rest of the world, right? You can't scale this up because human nature, because people are just fundamentally selfish. And that's when I realized, actually, that so many of the ideas that I really cared about, that I thought were very promising, not only basic income, but also different ways of doing democracy, like having an actual, genuine, participatory democracy, in which we don't have career politicians, but citizen politicians. All these ideas sort of depended on a completely different view of human nature. But then I also realized that I didn't really have that view, because I had read people like Steven Pinker and Malcolm Gladwell. I knew about the bystander effect that, you know, seem to show that people don't help each other when there's an emergency, when someone's drowning or someone's being attacked in the street. When there are I too knew, many people. Yeah, I knew, yeah. About, exactly, exactly. Uh, I That's knew cool. about the Stanford prison experiment, you know, the famous experiment by Philip Zimbardo in which these prison guards, students started to behave horribly when they were given a uniform. Mm -hmm. uh, so this book has sort of been an attempt to resolve that discrepancy, to sort of, yeah, arrive at a, at a different view of human nature and to see if I could do that. And that's also why it's been a, a real reckoning with my own ideas. Because so many of these things that I used to believe in, like Pinker's view on the prehistory of war or the bystander effect or the Stanford prison experiment, I actually discovered that, you know, there's a very different story to be told about all of that. Have you heard of uh, Dacker Keltner? In his yes. research? Yes. Yeah, I, yes. I devote a chapter to him. Oh, so, okay. uh, yeah, I mean, if I would make a very quick summary of the book, it would be most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. And I think right. he's given, I mean, he's given fantastic evidence for, for how that works. Power and, yeah, and money, you know, hierarchical differences. Uh, yeah, yeah, fantastic. You know, I was thinking while you were speaking and people say, oh, human nature, that, that might work in the Netherlands or, you know, Scandinavian countries, but it would never work here, particularly when Americans say that. I think often in, at least in the American conversation about human nature, <clears throat> there's a veiled discussion of, of race going on. You know, I think the, the assumption is that uh, non-white people are have less of a veneer than white people do. And I think this is one of the you know, sort of race-based criticisms of Steven Pinker's work. It's this idea that white people are more civilized. And therefore, when we're talking about human nature, we're basically talking 
All right, cool. I will start this again. All right. Um, what I was saying is... Yeah, and I, I think in the United States, that's sort of the subtext to this conversation about taxation, about welfare, you know, about about state support of, uh, you know, putting a, a floor on, uh, you know, suffering is that what a lot of the sort of racist assumption is that black people will just take advantage of that because they're lazy you know, they're tropical. They're used to lying around waiting for the fruit to ripen, as opposed to white people who work hard. And, you know, we've been dealing with winter for tens of thousands of years. Um, you know, and I, th I think that's part of the problem when, you know, when you propose these ideas and people say, oh, in Holland, that might work because they're imagining Holland is a place of all very rational white. People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, well, and it's interesting Go ahead. Go well, ahead. you know, I wish racism would be a unique American phenomenon, <laughs> but I'm sad to say that, you know, there's a lot of racism here in in Europe here as well. And um, sometimes people say, oh, a welfare state can't work uh, in a big country like the US. It only works in small Scandinavian countries. But then have they ever been to France? I mean, France is a big country. Have they ever been to Germany? I mean, Germany is, a, I can assure you, it's a quite a big country. Uh, and there's also quite a lot of cultural diversity in these countries, but then still they have a relatively strong welfare state. So, um, yeah, I, I think this just sad truth is that the US in many ways is just so light years behind, I would say more civilized, <laughs> sort of ironical use of the word civilized there, but more civilized country, other rich countries. I mean, things like universal health care, right? Even conservatives in Canada and the UK, uh, even the Tories absolutely love universal health care. They wouldn't dream of abolishing the NHS in the UK. Actually, the populists use the NHS in their vote leave campaign, you know, to, to exit the European Union. Uh, as a way to say, you know, we're going to spend more on the NHS and that's why we need to get out of the EU. Mm. So, uh, right. yeah, I think that the U.S. here is uh, really an outlier. Well, do you think that I know you're very interested in politics. I, I very much enjoyed your appearance on Tucker Carlson's show, mm -hmm. um, which was I mean, I, I have to hand it to you. I, your your speech at Davos and your appearance on Tucker Carlson's show, even though he didn't he never broadcasted mm -hmm. it, but you very cleverly recorded it and, and released that. I'd encourage people to see that because it's one of the few, both of these cases are one of the few um, opportunities to see someone speaking actual truth to power. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I admire you for that. Um, because when you get into those places, when you get into a television studio or you're invited to Davos or TED or, you know, any of these other elite gatherings, there's incredible pressure to join the club. You know, yeah. you're given an invitation to be among the world's most powerful people. And the last thing you want to do is screw that up by speaking the truth to them. That's true. Yeah. Why did you mess up your opportunity to hang out with uh, the rich and powerful huh. for the rest of your life? Huh, that's a good question. May, I mean, maybe there's some cultural background that's relevant here as well. I think I'm part of the first generation of young Dutch people 
whose English is good enough to sort of play a role in an international context or to, you know, to mm. uh, go on American television, for example, or British television, that probably wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago. Also because the internet didn't really exist yet or wasn't, you know, as widespread yet. Um, so that plays a role. And then, I mean, you, you've also read Christopher Boom's uh, research into nomadic hunter-gatherers, right? And he describes sure. this sort of their, their sort of democracy or sort of how they tame those in power, which is by using the power of shame a lot, right? And whenever someone feels that he or she is really important, then basically the group cracks down on that person. And so if you are a really successful hunter, what do you do? Well, you come back to the camp and you say nothing. And then someone comes up to you and say, well, uh, uh, did you catch anything today? And then you're like, well, not really anything important. And then that person would know, you know, tonight is going to be a feast. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> and actually, yeah. when I read that research, it reminded me quite a bit of the Netherlands. Because mm. here, success is a crime. <laughs> uh, it's something to be uh, that I struggle with a little bit as an author who sells uh, a few books that you always have to be wary that you know they want to chop your head off which I really love about this country I think it's a very healthy mm. and uh, sane thing because power corrupts so uh, you always have to be wary of those effects and um, yeah yeah I guess then uh, when I was, I mean, I was invited to go to Davos and uh, just find it an incredibly uncomfortable place to be. I mean, all kinds of rich people, very rich people who feel they're improving the world and who talk about feminism and inequality and climate change and blah, 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 while they've flown in with their private yets and they have their businesses with their corrupt uh, business models and they don't even pay their workers a living wage. I mean, the hypocrisy is just astounding. And uh, yeah. then I think of my own parents and I think of I think of the kind of fees that I could get for talks of 10 minutes now right just because I've become a little bit more famous and I realized that that's about as much as my mother earns in a year as a special needs teacher and she's doing more important work than I'm doing so I guess that helps you know just having a a little bit of a background like that and just uh, yeah yeah being surrounded by people who know that it's that these are very unusual places. And then it suddenly becomes, you know, it, it sort of, it was surprising for me to go viral because I was just like, but this is what everyone is thinking, right? Here you are yeah. talking about the problems of the world and not talking about taxes. I mean, that's what we should be talking about, right? And there, it was it's crazy. There was only one panel in that whole conference. You must realize there are like a, more than 100 panels. There was one panel in the media center and that was, that was really hidden away. You couldn't really get there. Uh, well, you could get there, but you really had to know the way. Um, and it was just, um, I don't know, 15 people in a room talking about tax evasion. And then there was the, the, the finance minister of Ireland, a notorious tax paradises, who was talking most of the time. And there was also a journalist from the Panama Papers, you know, this big investigative mm. journalism project. And he was basically being ignored there. So that's sort of what radicalized me because that happened on, I think, Thursday. And then on Friday, I was like, come on, this is ridiculous. Uh, so, yeah, and then that went viral. I didn't expect that because probably at that moment, only a couple of hundred people were watching the live stream. But that's, mm. I mean, that's also, um, I mean, there are a lot of dark sides to what we call the internet or social media. 
But sometimes we can also see behind the curtain and the, then the veil is yeah. being lifted and uh, we see what's really going on. And I think a moment like that uh, was one of those. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned behind the curtain and you were talking about the sort of Dutch aversion to great success mm -hmm. and great, great disparity in opportunity and so on. I, I was walking in Amsterdam with my buddy Martin and uh, years ago and I said, I was looking at how, you know, you can walk down a street in Amsterdam and you look right into people's living rooms because they all have <laughs> yeah, these yeah, giant yeah. windows yeah. and super clean yeah. and the curtains are always yeah, open. Yeah. It's very typically And Dutch. you see people, yeah, yeah huh. you see people sitting there at the dinner table or watching television or reading a book yeah. or whatever. Huh. And I said to Martin, <laughs> I love the absence of shame in your culture. I love how people are just like, yeah, whatever, you know, this is my life. And Martin said, oh, I, th I think it's the opposite of what you what you assume. He said, the reason people leave their curtains open is because if you close your curtains, your neighbors will start talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. That is funny. Yeah. Or maybe, yeah, I mean, another hypothesis is that, I mean, closed curtains, installing home security cameras, etc. That is sort of a sign of distrust, right? And in a society with relatively high interpersonal trust, where most people say that on average, most other people can be trusted, that's a society where you can just leave open the curtains and you don't really have to worry. Mm -hmm. Because the great thing about open curtains is that you can look outside, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it works both ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the, as a sort of a metaphor for wealth, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, if you enclose, I'm in a place right now uh, called Big Sky, Montana, mm -hmm. which is where Ted Turner and all these billionaires bought a bunch of land and ranches in Montana. Mm -hmm. um, and we just, uh, you know, I live in a van in the summer. I travel around in my van and, and camp out and it's great. Mm -hmm. uh, so we just got a room in a Marriott hotel because I needed to record a few podcasts. Mm -hmm. So we got this room, we've got Wi-Fi, okay. But it's this like very... It's like Aspen or Davos, or it's like a ski resort, and it's horrible. Mm. And we were just walking down the street yesterday, and and uh, my partner and I were talking. We said, you know, the worst thing about being rich is that you spend a lot of time with rich people, hmm. and you spend time in places like this that are just horrible, oh, Malibu. It's absolutely horrible. Absolutely, it's it's the great tragedy I think of civilization is that. People spend so much time and energy getting rich or getting famous or, you know, building this wall around themselves. And then they find themselves isolated and alone and wondering what happened. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's like, a, as I said, in Civilized to Death, it's like a poker game where nobody really wins. Mm -hmm. The casino wins. Yeah. So what what is going on? Because. You mentioned government earlier. You're talking about uh, true democracy versus, you know, what's actually happening in a lot of the world mm -hmm. and particularly in the United States right now. Do you think that government is actually interested in increasing human welfare? Well, I think that what we have now in many countries is not a real democracy where you should have some kind of a rule of the people, but you have an elective aristocracy. So we are sort of allowed to choose our own aristocrats. Now, that's mm. better than a dictatorship. I mean, it's better than nothing. Uh, but it's not a real genuine democracy. 
so what you get are these dynasties. Uh, I, I, you see this particularly in the US. I mean, from a European Dutch perspective, this is crazy that you have things like the Bushes or the, the Clintons <laughs> or, or that people are saying, well, M Michelle Obama should run for office. I mean, the, the whole notion of, of writing an op-ed with the idea that, you know, our prime, the wife of a, our prime minister should run for office or the partner. I mean, this is ridiculous from an European perspective, but that's taken seriously in the US because, yeah, you have these brands of, of, of politicians and these dynasties. Um, and obviously you, you have the same phenomenon in the UK where also being a politician is a quite elitist phenomenon. You know, you, many of them went to quite elitist boarding schools and they were groomed from a quite early age. Uh, to get in there um so that's that's sort of as i said it's better than nothing because there is some control every i don't know three or four years the population can say well we really hate that person at least that person has to go but come on that's not a real democracy i think if we mm. want to understand what a real democracy is we have to go back to the asian greeks uh if they would have looked at our system they would have said well this is highly undemocratic elections are highly undemocratic because they can be easily influenced by those who have a lot of money. Um, what you need is to just randomly select politicians from the population, sortition. Um, right. That's what they did. That was what sort of, the, sort of the first democratic model was. Now, obviously, the Greek system was very flawed. Slaves obviously couldn't be elected, or, and women also couldn't be elected. But that idea in itself, sortition, uh, is very powerful, I think. So what we've seen yeah. since basically the 80s is that um, in many places around the globe, uh, around the globe, there have been these experiments with what you can call participatory democracy, and highly successful, highly successful. Um, the the most famous example is of what they started doing in Porto Alegre, the Brazilian city, with um, participatory budgeting, where an increasing amount of the city's budget was basically being allocated to the citizens so that they could decide what it would be spent on. Um, mm. But there are other examples as well. Uh, there's a, a good friend of mine, David Van Rybroek, has, uh, has uh, written a book two or three years ago. He's, I think, one of the most important Flemish or Belgian intellectuals. Um, he's written a book with the title Against Elections and, and, and for Democracy. Um, I think that's a very promising um, direction of thought um, mm. that could help us to yeah, get a government that is sort of more responsive to what people actually want. And do you think that that is applicable on a large scale or are these sorts of ideas um, only really uh, realistic when we're talking about a city like Porto Alegre mm -hmm. or, or a small country like Belgium mm -hmm. or, you know what I mean? Because I think scale is a big issue, yeah. right? We have hunter-gatherers uh, interact in a certain way because they all know each yeah. other. The reputational damage is important. Whereas you have, uh, you know, on a large-scale society <clears throat> with hundreds of millions of people, mm -hmm. yeah, reputational damage uh, mm -hmm. is avoidable. Mm -hmm. I used to believe that as well. I used to believe that <clears throat> scale was sort of the big problem here or the elephant in the room. I changed my mind a little bit. Uh, there are a couple of reasons. So in the first place, um, there's been quite a lot of recent evidence from anthropology that if you look at American togetherers, actually their social networks are much larger than we've assumed for a long time. So still the standard picture is that they lived in very small groups of, I don't know, 30 or 40 individuals and would meet very few people over their lifetimes. Uh, there's now some recent evidence that actually their social networks are way larger. 
And I think this also simply had to be the case because otherwise we would never have succeeded. You know, we had to meet a lot of other people because that's how we interacted, came up with new inventions, learned from each other, and that's how we competed other hominid species. So um, you have, we've all heard about Dunbar's number, how supposedly 150 is the limit. And this was sort of based on studies like looking at how many Christmas cards people send to other people. And then that's supposedly, I don't know, a maximum of 150. I, I, I mean, that would be a nightmare for me having to send 150 Christmas cards. But anyway, <laughs> that's sort of, um, and I think that's really unconvincing. Uh, social networks are actually often much larger. And then if you look at some of the companies uh, or organizations that implement a more hopeful view of human nature and actually give much more freedom to people and rely more on the intrinsic motivation, um, they often are much larger as well. In my book, I give an example hmm. of one company in the Netherlands uh, that uh, is in healthcare. It's called uh, Buurtzorg, which translates as neighborhood care. They're the most successful healthcare company in the Netherlands, uh, giving higher salaries to their employees, delivering healthcare uh, of a higher quality with uh, more satisfied clients. Um, and they've got 15,000 employees, 15,000, uh, and no management at all, completely decentralized. So I think you can scale that up uh, once you have a good plan, once, once sort of the blueprint works. Um, mm. Yeah, so that, that's sort of, I used to believe that scale is, is sort of the big problem as well, but sort of real life examples, real world examples have changed my mind here. Hmm. Interesting. What are you working on next? Do you have a, a project in mind or are you taking a break? Well, you know, one of the weird things about publishing a book like this is that sort of the dumbing down that happens after, <laughs> after publication. Maybe you recognize that. Is that you? I do. I <laughs> you do. have to talk so much about it. And then um, what sometimes happens to me is that, you know, you, you read the book again one or two years and you're like, hey, it was way more sophisticated than I remember. <laughs> it was actually way more yeah. interesting and nuanced, <laughs> but I forgot about yeah. it. I actually once received a, uh, some kind of prize, and this was in Belgium, sort of the best nonfiction book of the year. It was a very insignificant think tank that gave me this prize, but I was still happy with it because it was the first time it had ever happened to me. And then the, the interviewer asked me the question, yeah, on page so-and-so, you talk about the philosopher Epicurus, you know, from ancient Greeks, who talks about this and that. Uh, can you explain? And I was like, did I really? I have no idea. Ne never heard, <laughs> never of, heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully uh, this book promotion tour is, uh, is over soon, and then I can start thinking again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Civilized to Death just came out in paperback mm -hmm. uh, this week. Yeah, that's actually. the worst thing about paperback. Then it all starts again. You're like... <laughs> it starts again, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, yeah. I really enjoy talking, especially talking about it to readers. You know, that's really... Yeah. And, and obviously longer podcasts. That's, but, you know, many of these interviews are like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And it's like, oh, you assume that most people are pretty decent. But what about the Holocaust? Please give me an answer in 20 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, hear you. Uh, well, listen, man, I'm, I'm really glad that we're on the same side mm -hmm. uh, of this uh, debate these days. Who knows where we'll be in the future yeah, but yeah. for the moment. We'll <laughs> <laughs> it's really good to have you on this side. And uh, do we agree that people weren't all ugly in the past? We can agree on I that. I mean, have I? Yeah. I mean, I think there were some really <laughs> beautiful women 
in prehistory. I just have to believe that, you know? <laughs> All right. All right, man. Thank you very much for this. Thanks for having me, Chris. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground.